Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week. We are really excited that you're joining us today. We're halfway through summer, and a lot of our listeners might be traveling for holidays right now. If you are, I apologize in advance for this episode. Oh no, is it another camper episode? No, thankfully not a camping one or a hiking one. I was actually just thinking about your Wells Gray Park murder episode that you had. That one has still stuck with me. It's just so terrifying to think of somebody watching you as you're just hanging around the campsite. Yeah. You just painted such a visual for me in my mind that it's almost like I watched a movie of it. Like I just have those images in my mind from that episode. It was a freaky one. Yeah, I can't get it out of my brain. But that's not where we're going today. It's not. But listeners, if you haven't heard that one, you totally should. For today's episode, I chose this one because it is definitely a unique one. I don't think we've covered a case quite like it. This American case takes place in the 1950s. Sometimes it can be challenging to find things like court documents from that time. However, I struck gold in my research. I was able to find not only court documents, but also many FBI files pertaining to this case. Today's murderer was a dirtbag that didn't give a second thought about the collateral damage that his actions would cause. He only cared about the death of his intended victim, come what may. His actions truly had catastrophic consequences. What are you going to tell us today, Christy? It's very disturbing what happens. It's unsure if his motive was revenge or greed, but I say it was likely both. It's always both. It really is in this case. John Gilbert Graham was born on the 23rd of January in 1932 in Denver, Colorado. He was nicknamed Jack for some reason and steadily went by that name, so that is what I will call him. But I'm so curious how John turns into Jack. Is that a common thing? I have no idea how that happens. It just seems like John and Jack aren't that different of names. They both start with J. They're four letters. Like, why was John not good enough? Why did you have to go by Jack? He was a jack of all trades. Or the jack of no trades, maybe in his case. Oh, really? Yeah. He wasn't a very successful person? (laughs) No, he's not a great guy, as you'll learn. Jack was born to a woman named Daisy Eldora King. I think her maiden name was Walker. Daisy was born on March 9th, 1902 in Buena Vista, Colorado. So she would have been just shy of her 30th birthday when her son was born. Well, that's a little bit older for that time period to be having a baby. It was, but Jack did already have an older sister named Helen Ruth Gallagher. She was born in 1923 during Daisy's first marriage to a man named Tom Charles Gallagher and would have been nine years old when Jack was born. Okay. So she did have a baby at a more predictable age for that time, had gotten divorced, and then remarried. And that's why Jack came when she was so much older. Okay. Jack was born during the beginning years of the Great Depression. Times were tough, and possibly as a result, Jack's father, William Graham, died from pneumonia. Jack was only around three years old when his father passed. One report stated that Daisy and William were already separated when he died, but I couldn't confirm that. Either way, his father's death left Daisy in even greater poverty. 
Consequently, she decided to place young Jack in an orphanage in hopes of providing him with better care. And sadly, I'm betting this isn't the only story like this during the Great Depression. No, I think it happened a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. Or at least shipped off to other relatives. That would have been a really challenging time for a lot of families. I don't know how you would do it. If you just can't feed your children, then sending them off is the better solution. Right, especially as a single mom. Mm -hmm. In 1941, Daisy was married again to a man named John Earl King, who I believe went by Earl. And I thought, why didn't anyone want the name John? (laughs) It's kind of ironic for two men named John who didn't go by their names for this case. Unfortunately, the third time wasn't the charm because Daisy's third husband sadly passed away from heart disease in 1954. She has like the worst luck. She really has. Daisy did inherit a favorable sum of money from Earl and decided to open a restaurant with it. The restaurant was named The Crown A and was located at 581 South Federal Boulevard. I believe it was a drive through restaurant, and fast food was a new and upcoming concept at the time, likely being one of the contributing factors of its success. So now she's got some money. Yeah, she has a lot of money now. And she's really smart with her money. Okay, so does she get Jack back? Well, that's unclear because Jack was growing up in the 30s and 40s. It was harder to piece together what was happening in his personal life. It was easy to find the court and the criminal stuff, but not so much his personal stuff. Some reports said that his mother left him in the orphanage until he aged out. A lot of them said that. Even after she remarried and had enough money to take care of him. Yes. Oh. Others said he lived with his mom and her husband for a short time, went to different foster homes, lived with his grandmother for a time, and even lived with a neighbor. Various reports also stated that although he was living apart from his family, he would sometimes go home to celebrate a holiday with them, but would then be promptly shipped back after the holiday ended. So he had some contact, but just enough to tell him that he really wasn't wanted? Right. And what kind of made it even worse is, although it was hard to tell which account is accurate, Jack's accounts does make it sound like his mother and sister always lived together, and he was not typically a part of that. What? She only shipped the one off? Yeah, she kept the older daughter. Oh, and we have learned that this never goes well. No, but the daughter was nine years older, probably able to help her out. You know, if they're trying to, say, wash clothes or sew or do things for work, she probably could have helped. I don't know what was happening, but Helen was with Daisy and Jack was shipped out. That's what happened in the Anatoly case. Mm-hmm. And look at what happened with him. Anyway, you slice it, his childhood did not appear to be a stable or overly loving one. And I cannot imagine how he wouldn't feel resentment over his mom choosing to keep his sister over him. Jack would later say he felt abandoned and unloved by his mother. It wouldn't be until Jack was 22 years old that he would once more be a part of his mother's life. Understandably, their relationship was strained, and they were often seen arguing. Despite their tense relationship, Jack ended up working at his mother's restaurant. He managed it for her. By the time he was 23, and at the time of the murder, Jack was already married to a woman named Gloria Elson, and had a 20-month-old child and a 9-month-old child. Oh, that's quick. Mm-hmm. That's Irish twins. Absolutely it was. They had married in 1953 when Jack was 21, and I think she was only a year younger than Jack. Daisy had come to stay with the couple after their second child was born, and was still living with them when the murder took place. She came to help out, but also check in on her business, and apparently she also had other business ventures outside of the restaurant. 
She had made wise business decisions and reaped the financial benefits. I think that people that lived through the Great Depression just had that natural knack of managing their money well. Oh, absolutely. And especially for her being a woman in the 50s, being this strong businesswoman was quite remarkable. It would be at that time. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have been welcomed in with open arms everywhere she went. Jack lived in a home his mother allegedly paid for at 2650 West Mississippi Avenue in East Denver. She came to stay with them in December of 54. During his trial, we are given a bit more insight into the type of man that Jack grew up to be. Helen, his sister, testified that she had continuously felt less at ease when she was with Jack over the years leading up to the murder. She had also expressed to family members during those years that she didn't think her brother was mentally sound. She expressed that he had, quote, pent-up violence. Because of this, she preferred to not be around him. She said he would joke about violent things and thought they were funny. The example of this she gave was when Jack was staying with her and her husband in Alaska, he was working as a dragline operator for the CAA. One day, he had a hard time loosening a bolt from a piece of equipment, so he grabbed dynamite and used it to blow off the bolt. He thought it was hilarious. He didn't realize how dangerous that was? He got a kick out of things that were violent. Wow. What wasn't funny was when Jack turned violent on occasion towards his sister. Once, he knocked her to the ground and then kneed her in the chest, injuring her ribs. On another occasion, he threatened to hit her with a hammer, and she only escaped because she locked herself inside her room. Was this when they were kids or when they were adults? More adults, it sounds like. Ooh. Because they weren't living together when they were kids. That's disturbing. Uh Uh-huh. And this would be like young adulthood because he's only 23 at the time of the murder. Right, but way old enough to know better. Oh, absolutely. Another time, Jack had fallen asleep, and when he awoke, he couldn't find his wife. He ended up finding her playing cards with his sister and mother. He was so enraged that he, quote, cuffed and backhanded his wife several times. What? The family was rightfully beginning to fear him. And so Daisy moves in with him, even though she knows he's violent? Yeah, well, she goes there to check on her businesses, but also to help out because they've just had a baby after still having pretty much an infant in the home. Right. Maybe she was worried for her daughter-in-law and the kids. Maybe. Before working at his mother's restaurant, Jack worked various entry-level jobs. He had dropped out of college, where he reportedly met his wife, and had briefly served in the U.S. Coast Guard as a motorman in 1948. He didn't have a great record there, but was honorably discharged just nine months after joining. Apparently, he was unaccounted for for 63 days during his service. How long was his service? Nine months. I was like, where did you go, Jack? (laughs) It's so weird. So they didn't call it dishonorable, but they're like, yeah, you gotta go. It's not a good fit. (laughs) Yeah, he was gone two out of the nine months. And I don't think it was consecutively. It was just like some days it's like, where's Jack? Nobody knows where Jack is. And then all of a sudden, oh, there's Jack. So not showing a lot of accountability here. Regarding him being in college, Jack had dropped out of school in grade nine, but then passed the entrance exam for Denver University. They gave him a high school diploma and accepted him into their school, but he ended up dropping out anyway. But that was kind of impressive that he could pass the entry exam with only a grade nine education. Yeah, I'm thinking he must be fairly intelligent then. Mm Mm-hmm, had to have been. Jack was in and out of trouble with the law, and Daisy did seem to use her money to help bail him out. Now married with two kids, it is believed that Daisy gave him the manager job and bought him a house to try and get his life on a better track. 
while she's trying to take care of her grandkids. Yeah, and maybe she had some guilt about not being there when he was a child. Maybe. Let me give you an example of a time that Jack was in trouble with the law and Daisy bailed him out. In 1951, Jack was working for a manufacturing firm. He decided to up and steal a large amount of payroll checks and cash them for himself. He was able to forge the president of the company's signature to cash 42 of the checks. Before he was caught? Yes. Wow. Each check was for $100, totaling $4,200. That would be around 65000 Canadian or almost 50000 US dollars today. So it was a good chunk of change. Yeah, it wasn't a little amount. With the stolen moolah, Jack spent half of it on a fancy convertible and headed out of state. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's a depreciating asset. I know. So many better things to spend your money on. Right? But when you're this young kid, a convertible seems like a great idea at the time. A car is always fun. Not practical, though. What 19-year-old doesn't want a car? The Denver police were able to build a solid case against him and promptly put out a warrant for his arrest. On September 11, 1951, just outside Lubbock, Texas, a patrolman spotted Jack illegally transporting whiskey into his car. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Jack was able to flee the scene and a chase ensued. According to the Denver History Library, quote, he led police on a wild, countywide pursuit. I assume in modern terms, he led them on a high-speed chase. Police had to set up a roadblock in order to finally stop him. Jack saw the roadblock and decided to just put pedal to metal and crashed into the roadblock. Oh, no. I assume he thought he could plow right through it. And I actually had an uncle do this once. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> His new car wouldn't have fared well against that. No, what was he thinking? Several officers were injured during this process, which forced the police to fire dozens of shots into his shiny new car. Oh, so he'd worked so hard to steal the money to buy the car. And now he just totaled it, trying to get away with whiskey. Yep. Okay. And why didn't he just steal the car? That's what doesn't even make sense. He steals this money and then buys the car. It doesn't make any sense at all. No. We would be much better criminals. We would. If you're going to be a thief, be a thief. You steal the money and the car and then you've got extra. It's too bad that stupid dirtbags, though, aren't any less deadly. They're actually probably more deadly when it comes down to it. Oh, no. Throughout this, we'll kind of shake our heads at Jack and the decisions that he's making. Surprisingly, Jack was not injured in the incident and was promptly arrested. On top of his fraud charge, he now also had a variety of other charges, including illegal transportation of alcohol and charges related to the chase, added to his rap sheet. When police inspected his vehicle, they found a loaded 44 caliber handgun sitting on the front seat floor. What? He wasn't messing around. I don't know what he thought he was going to go do. Was he a gangster? Like, what was he doing? <laughs> no, but you can see how he is just kind of out of control. There's not a lot of thought going on. No, not at all. Jack spent 60 days in Texas jail and then was sent back to Colorado to face his forgery charges. Daisy paid back the money that her son had stolen from the company. She had obviously become quite wealthy by this point. I am not sure if it is because he had a rich mama bail him out, but Jack didn't even serve any jail time for his crimes after entering Colorado. But he was charged, right? He was charged. Instead of jail time, he was placed on five years of probation and had to meet with a probation officer on a regular basis, which sounded like they were strict about, so he must have complied. Assumably frustrated with her wild and careless son, 
Daisy told Jack that he had to pay her back the money she spent to keep him out of jail and pay some sort of rent for living in the house. She had paid $2,500 to get him out and then was supposed to make $40 a month payments to pay off the remaining balance. I assume she was making those payments, not her dirtbag son. But that was a lot of money for that time. Mm-hmm. This fight about money increased the tension between them. And there were rumors floating around that Jack was actually stealing from his mother's business. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him at all. I don't think I would have put him in a managerial position. Not at all. With all the access to money and the books to hide it? Yeah. But I think she was just really trying to help him succeed, like get back on track. Right. And it's so sad to see someone so ungrateful just throw that kind of opportunity away. It's a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. He could have completely turned his life around. Oh, yeah, and been quite successful and comfortable in life. Instead, Jack decided to get creative to come up with money to pay his mother back. Forget this hard work thing. At the beginning of 1955, Jack's Chevy truck was struck by a train outside of Denver. It just happened to be on the tracks. Yeah. The vehicle was somehow abandoned on the tracks, and Jack magically hadn't reported it stolen. Jack submitted a claim to his insurance company for the truck and was paid well for it. What? They didn't raise any eyebrows about how did the truck end up on the railroad track? Yeah, he's like, I don't know how it got there. But he hadn't reported it stolen and they still paid him out. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Insurance fraud probably wasn't as well documented back then. No, I'm sure it wasn't. Just months after the truck incident, in the early morning hours on Labor Day weekend, A mysterious explosion took place at the Crown A, the family restaurant. Conveniently. Mm Mm-hmm. The place was sadly destroyed. Unsurprisingly, Jack had taken out a hefty insurance policy on the restaurant, which he collected. Conveniently. Yes. It was never technically proven, but it is strongly believed that Jack caused the destruction of both the truck and his mother's booming restaurant. And I thought, what an entitled little creep of a dirtbag. He had no regard for how much his mother had worked to build a business that would supply him with a steady income. No, he just torched it. Mm -hmm. He just wanted the quick fix. Jack later did admit to blowing up the restaurant to collect the insurance money. But he wouldn't have been the one to collect the insurance. It would have been his mom because she owned the building. Well, he had taken out the policy on the building and so he did collect it. He put himself as the beneficiary? Yep. That is interesting. Daisy decided that she wanted to go visit her daughter Helen in Alaska. She was likely devastated and needing a break from the chaos of Jack. I can't imagine what that would feel like. She's worked so hard to build up this business and then just to lose it all. And I wonder if she suspected him. Yeah, I don't know if she did. And maybe she was already fearful for her own life. And maybe that's why she was fleeing to see her daughter. Yeah, I'm not sure how Daisy was feeling at the time, but she was just like, okay, I need to go. Either way, it would have been a stressful situation, even if she didn't suspect Jack of anything. Yeah. Daisy purchased a ticket on United Airlines Flight 629. This was not a direct flight. The four-engine plane was a Douglas DC-6B named Mainliner Denver and was being operated by Lee Hall, a World War II veteran. The flight started out in Queens, New York, stopped in Chicago, Illinois, and then stopped at the Denver, Colorado Stapleton Airfield, where Daisy planned to board. The flight was scheduled to then make stops in Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, before making its way to Alaska, where Daisy would be reunited with her daughter and her family. So a clear cross-country path. He's not. He is. He takes down the whole plane. He does. 
to get back at his mom. Yes. That is a dirtbag move. Uh Uh-huh. 44 people boarded Flight 629 on November 1st, 1955. There were 39 passengers, which included Daisy, and five crew members, a pilot, a co-pilot, and three flight attendants, or stewardesses as they were called in the 50s. And he didn't know any other person on that plane except for his mom. Only his mom. Oh, that is cold. And he does speak about that, which I will tell you about after. The plane took off at 6.52 in the evening. The flight started out seamlessly. However, it would only be in the air for a total of 11 minutes. When the plane was above a sugar beet farm near Longmont, Colorado, at 7.03 p.m., it suddenly exploded into flames, while 5,782 feet in the air, everything and every person on that flight came crashing to the ground. There were no survivors. That is the height of self-centeredness, to not have any regard for any of those other people, just he wanted his mom dead, and so he took 43 other people down with her? Yeah. Wow. He is like a devil. I can't even imagine even having a couple people perish because of your actions, let alone a whole airplane full. Witnesses said that there was an initial bang or explosion, and then moments later, being filled full of fuel, the aircraft erupted into a massive blast. Flames started at the under part of the plane and then rose, making the plane look like a giant fireball. Both engines separated from the wings, and the propellers continued to spin as they dropped to the ground. As debris fell, smaller explosions could continue to be heard. Bits and pieces, including tiny white-hot bits of metal, fell across several square miles. The explosion was so great that Denver Tower controllers reported that the momentary flash would have been seen 10,000 feet into the air at the base of the clouds. One witness said that at first, he thought he was seeing a meteor. It was hard for onlookers to initially make out that it was a plane. It just looked like a ball of fire heading towards the earth. Oh my goodness, that would have been so scary. I can't imagine. Surprisingly, the entire tail section of the plane had detached from the main fuselage and landed almost undamaged. It was described as if being cut off the plane cleanly with a knife. And you can see photos of the wreckage... And it is so catastrophic. A man named Kenneth Hopp lived less than a mile from where the plane crashed. He told the Denver Post, quote, I heard the engines rev up. Then I heard a loud pop. I ran out of the house and saw the burning plane. It was nosing toward the ground all on fire, with sparks trailing. Kenneth hopped into his car and sped towards the area where the plane hit the ground. He was the first person to arrive on the scene an experience he said would stick with him for the entirety of his life. He was only 22 at the time. It would have been horrific to see all that just spread everywhere. Yeah, and I'm sure he got there so quickly that items would have still been falling. Lighter items from the sky. Even just the soot and all that stuff Mm. coming down. Oh, I can just envision it with the luggage. The luggage would have been lighter, right, than the plane pieces. And so you could see like people's clothing falling from the sky still on fire. Yes. And I do talk about the clothing and that kind of stuff like pretty soon here, because it makes it that much more eerie. It makes it more real. Yeah. That these were real people. Kenneth continued to say, quote, within a matter of seconds, I was there driving my car part way and walking the rest. I walked around the scene, but I heard nobody calling out and I didn't see anyone. A neighbor arrived and the two men searched the area. He said, quote, We stayed out in the field for a while and covered up bodies of two men. Each was laying beside a hole about a foot deep, 
made by the impact of their bodies. No way. Uh Uh-huh. That's how hard they fell. Oh. Can you even imagine coming across this scene? It was November, so the weather had a chill in it. It was only 2 degrees Celsius or 36 degrees Fahrenheit that day. It would have been so horrific, like you said, to see personal items thrown about like purses, shoes, and hats, not to mention deceased persons. And one report said that not every body was fully intact either. Oh, it wouldn't with an explosion like that if it can blow apart a metal structure. Could you imagine what it could do to a body that's just flesh? No, I can't. Another report said that Flight 629 was also carrying 400 pounds of mail, and the U.S. Postal Service was called in to collect as much as they could. They had picked it up in Denver. That would be quite the task. Yeah. It didn't take long for emergency crews to arrive on the scene, but it would take a long time to sort through the massive amounts of debris and dead bodies. Is the mail part of his charges? Isn't that like another federal offense to... Tamper with the mail? Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I don't believe he was charged anything in connection with the mail. Not that that's any consideration in the light of 44 people dying. I was just curious. But it just added an extra sense of complicatedness, I guess, to this happening. Because there was 400 pounds of mail. That's a lot of mail. Yeah. And in Denver, they had loaded this mail, filled up the fuel tanks... And I think because they had just filled up the fuel tanks, why the explosion was so great. The FBI were involved in this case right from the start. I read that they had actually volunteered their service. They're like, no, we're on this. They were able to obtain a flight manifest. A lot of the people who were on flight 629 were badly burned or disfigured. Some were identified by loved ones. Others were identified by fingerprints. Eventually, everyone was found and accounted for. Oh, that is at least a comfort that everyone was found. Over a crime scene that big, there is the potential there not to find everybody. It's true. So thankfully they did. I could not find the detailed manifest to be able to read to you everyone who was on that flight that day, but I did find some information regarding a few of the victims, which I will share. The youngest person on the plane was an 18-month-old baby named James Fitzpatrick. His father was a soldier stationed in Okinawa, and hadn't seen his son since he was only six weeks old. No. He never dreamt that that would be the last time he'd see his little boy. It was said that he died in his mother's arms. That is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. That whole family probably spent all that time away thinking that the dad, the soldier, was the one more in danger. Absolutely. Never would they imagine that the wife and the baby would be killed. That is sad. Here he is sacrificing for this country. He's sacrificing for Jack's freedoms and rights. And this is what happens to his family. Jacqueline Hines was one of the flight attendants working, but there were also other flight attendants on the flight who were vacationing. There was a young couple on their way to celebrate their first wedding anniversary. There were four Washington state officials on board, two government employees, plus the wife of an administrative assistant to President Dwight D. Eisenhower. A Denver business owner was on the flight to conduct business in Alaska, as well as two top executives for Oldsmobile. There was a Canadian couple on board who had just applied for U.S. naturalization just two months before the flight. Five passengers had served in the Air Force, Army, and Navy, and six had been employed at defense plants during the Second World War. As I already mentioned, Lee Hall was the pilot. His daughter allegedly later said that her dad was not originally scheduled to fly that night. One of his pilot friends had been scheduled to fly Flight 629, but his daughter had become so ill that he asked Lee Hall to cover for him. I could not confirm this story, but how heartbreaking if it is true. 
I found the statement made by the daughter on the Denver Library History website, and they haven't removed it, so I assume it is true. That would be so sad. Talk about fate, hey? Right, imagine that. Other pilot who was originally scheduled to fly. Oh, and survivor remorse? Yeah, survivor guilt would be real. I can't imagine. And of course, a businesswoman named Daisy King, age 53, was on her way to Alaska to visit her daughter. I wish I had more information regarding the victims of this brutal crime. It is so unfathomable that one person could willingly sacrifice the lives of so many just to carry out their sinister plan against one. It's truly beyond sickening. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, how many people did this affect? All the families of those people. So selfish. Yeah. And does he ever make any statements about these families that he affected? He does, and I will read that to you closer to the end of the case. Okay. The FBI first suspected that perhaps an angry employee of the airline or someone who had recently been fired could be to blame. Looking into this theory would warrant an extensive search. They searched the backgrounds of all those on board, causing agents to be sent to countries across the world to investigate. It was also said that the FBI, of course, paid special attention to anyone who had any type of tie to the government. Oh, and there were so many officials on there that had ties to the government. There was, because there was even just right in the government, but also like the Navy and Army, that kind of stuff. Right. So the connection with Daisy is going to be like last on their list. She wouldn't have been considered very high on their priority list to check out. No, she would have seemed a very low target risk compared to the other people on the flight. Yeah, it would have taken the investigation so long. They're actually really fast. Oh, yeah, I was really surprised about it. Well, I guess when you're worried about uh, spy espionage conspiracy going on and killing off government officials, you are going to be fast. Yeah, if you think it could be a threat of terrorism or something like that. Right. You definitely would. But the FBI, honestly, they conduct their investigation perfectly in this case. Next, the officials looked into one of the OG motives for murder, which is greed. Who could profit financially from this horrific tragedy? And this next part blows my mind. I had no idea that this was a thing in the past. During the 50s, and I believe up until the 80s, a person could purchase last-minute life insurance from a vending machine at the airport. What? (laughs) I wrote, excuse me, what? It's totally true. I looked into it and I was like, is this really a thing? And yes, it just stopped in the 80s. So just because you were getting on a flight, you just purchased extra insurance just because? Right. You get your bottle of Coke out of one vending machine and your last minute life insurance out of another. Just in case the plane goes down. Right. And I hate to say it, but this might have been the most ingenious marketing ploy that ever existed. Fear of flying is real for so many people. How often, I wonder, did people purchase that insurance out of the fear of just in case I don't make it? That is a huge marketing ploy. Oh, it had to be a gold mine. How do you get on a plane? Would you get on the plane thinking, okay, I'm all set. I have life insurance. Or I would be thinking the whole time, okay, the plane's going to go down. The plane's going to go down. You're like, but at least my husband and kids are going to be paid financially for it. (laughs) I just think they probably sold a lot. That is crazy. I had no idea. No, I had no idea either. It was totally a new thing that I learned researching this, especially out of a vending machine. It wasn't even a booth (laughs) that you go to and talk to a real person about. So who logs your signature that you actually purchased it? And did you take the policy papers with you on the plane and then they burned up? And so they never had to pay out? 
It had, I think it was a three carbon copy. And so the machine kept one. There was one that you could mail and then one that you would keep. Interesting. So right from the airport, you could mail one out, keep one with you. And the machine kept one that went to the bank. For flight 629, 12 different passengers had purchased last minute life insurance from a coin operated machine prior to takeoff. A coin operated? How much were these policies? I don't know, but it was literally like a vending machine. Could you imagine sitting there popping in your quarters? No. Quarter after quarter after quarter for a whole life insurance policy? No. I'm assuming it was pretty affordable, to be honest. Oh, it must have been. Mm-hmm. Because the payout probably rarely happened. They do say that flying is safer than driving. It absolutely is. Six people had purchased the maximum life insurance amount of 62500 which today is over 725000 US dollars and close to a million Canadian. Wow, that's a good payout for just last minute insurance. It is. And nobody's doing any background checks. No, not at all. You just put in your coin and you get your insurance. Wow. Four people purchased the amount of $50,000, which is like 585000 US, 773000 Canadian. Two people bought the amount of 37500 which is 439 US and 580,000 Canadian today. One person purchased $35,000 worth, two purchased 12,500, and two had taken the lowest amounts at 6,250. Those were the ones more confident in the plane. Agents investigated all these policies and made note of who the beneficiaries were. And this is how they find Jack. Kind of. It's definitely not going to look good for Jack. Going back to the scene, Experts were called in from across the country to help with the massive cleanup and investigation. The 44 bodies, as they were found, were taken to Greeley, Colorado, and placed in a makeshift morgue that was set up in the National Guard Armory. The first two days after the crash was spent confirming the identities of the victims. Could you even imagine the sheer volume of bodies that they would have to identify? Like, no morgue in the county would be big enough to do that. No, not at all. Every piece of wreckage had to be collected and carefully examined. The pieces were taken to a large warehouse at Stapleton Airport and placed under guard. At this warehouse, a true-to-size replica was created out of wooden wire netting of the center of the plane. As parts were recovered, they were wired to the fake frame like a giant jigsaw puzzle. This thoughtful yet time-consuming plan allowed experts and officials to more fully analyze what happened to the plane. That would have been quite the process. Uh Uh-huh. So smart, though, really, because it's not a flat thing that Mm -hmm. you can just put together. It's a huge 3D model. Yeah, of an airplane. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But by doing that, then they could find out probably the burn patterns of where the fire started. Exactly. To quote the FBI report, it stated, quote, Upon completion of the mock-up assembly, the chairman of the Structure Investigating Committee of the Civil Aeronautics Board and a Douglas Aircraft Corporation engineer agreed that an explosion had occurred at Station 718 in the rear cargo pit, designated as Cargo Pit Number 4. This point of explosion was further pinpointed as being almost directly across the cargo compartment from the cargo loading door. Oh, so now they can match it with the luggage underneath and cross-match it with the insurance policy. Exactly. Cargo Pit Number 4 contained passenger luggage, including luggage picked up during its Denver stop. Daisy's luggage would later be determined to have been placed in this exact cargo pit. So smart. 
Yeah, this investigation was really top-notch. Copies of the waybills for all freight shipments were carefully analyzed, and it was found that nothing explosive or overly flammable was loaded onto the plane that day. Along with this, all the mechanical parts were inspected, and the conclusion was made that no malfunction of any of the parts had caused the plane to plummet to the earth in a fiery wreck. It had to be foul play. The FBI reports get way more technical. I am just giving you the summarized results of their findings. Just know that their findings and research over this plane crash was incredibly extensive. They definitely dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. The official accident report stated, quote, The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the disintegrating force of a dynamite bomb explosion, which occurred in the number four baggage compartment. Where Daisy's luggage is being stored. Yes. On November 7th, six days after the crash, the Chief of Investigations of the Civil Aeronautics Board made an official statement that sabotage was indicated in the evidence found, resulting in the FBI opening an official criminal investigation the next day. Everyone and everything had to be investigated. Even the passengers' luggage and personal belongings had to be gone through with a fine-tooth comb. Over 200 people who lived in the surrounding area had to also be questioned, not to mention anyone tied to the passengers, the airline, and staff. That would have been a huge investigation. I can't even believe the undertaking that this would have been. A baseline of the crash site had to be established, and then lines were made to create a 1,000-square-foot grid to aid in the extensive search. A 1,000-square-foot grid? Yep. That is massive. Yes. They had to mark that out so that every item found could be marked for identification and recorded where it was found in relation to the baseline using the grid. The process had to have been painstaking. And just a little side note, pieces from this explosion were reportedly found well into the 1970s. One farmer claimed that while plowing his field, he unearthed a piece of the plane's engine manifold, which he turned into the federal government. Wow. So for years later, pieces were still being found. Well, some of them probably just got buried right away. Yeah, if the bodies could make a one-foot indent, imagine a piece of metal, how it could slice right into the ground. Mm -hmm. Other random pieces of the plane and its contents at the time were also found far away from the site by people like farmers and were turned into the authorities for examination. As more and more pieces of the explosion were found, officials started to notice odd pieces of sheet metal appearing that were not part of the plane itself. One fragment was red with blue lettering. They could only make out the letters H and O. This was later determined to be the side of a 6-volt battery. FBI lab techs were also able to determine that components common to dynamite were on wreckage items. These findings led officials to believe that a homemade bomb had detonated during the flight, a bomb so powerful that it took down an entire aircraft and took the lives of 44 people. Do they find any pieces of Daisy's luggage? Not of her luggage, but of her handbag they do. That she had with her? Yes. Because I'm thinking that's a massive force that nothing will be left from the immediate vicinity of that bomb. Yeah, her bag gets blown up completely, but they do find some of her items with her carry-on and her purse. Okay. Since it was believed that the explosion started in the baggage compartment, thorough background checks were launched into every passenger on board that day. Not just the ones whose baggage was in that particular compartment. Right. And now not looking so much into government ties, it's we now need to look at every person that was on the plane. Okay. FBI noticed that close to one passenger's body, a large number of her personal effects had been found. 
Any guesses which passenger this was? Yes, Daisy. Yes, Mrs. Daisy King. In an act of poetic justice, amongst Daisy's possessions found was a newspaper article about her son's fraud charges and how a Mr. Jack Gilbert Graham had been placed on the local most wanted list in 1951. (laughs) Jackpot. I am sure alarm bells were ringing loud and clear for all officials involved. I don't know why Daisy had that in her purse, but she did, and thankfully so. It does make you wonder, did she suspect something about him? I don't know, because this is a few years since that's happened. Why was that in her purse? And who carries around newspaper clippings like that in your purse? That's not something that you're going to be showing off to other people. Right. Very different if you had like, he won an award or something like that. Exactly. This is shameful. Uh Uh-huh. I think it was the universe prompted her to take that with her to Alaska. So interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. It was believed that these items found were on her person during the flight. Like I said, likely from a carry-on or in her purse. Again, practically nothing was recovered from her luggage. It had been blown to smithereens. Only tiny fragments were collected. So this is another red flag for the agents. Because everybody else has larger pieces of luggage left from them. Yes. Police interviewed family members of the deceased to get descriptions of the passenger's baggage and such. Since Daisy was living with Jack and his wife Gloria at the time, they were both interviewed. Jack and Gloria gave officials a detailed description of Daisy's luggage, but were adamant that they had no idea what she had packed. They said Jack's mother never allowed anyone to help her pack. Jack did say, however, that he knew his mother was packing a large amount of shotgun shells and rifle ammunition with her so she could hunt caribou when in Alaska. Was she a known hunter? I don't know. That seems like a very odd thing for how old is she now? (laughs) She's in her 50s. Okay. Which is still young. She could have been. He said she packed 500 rounds of 22 caliber ammunition. 500 rounds? Uh Uh-huh. No way. Who even lets that through airport security? I don't think there was the strict airport security like we have now. And his story was, she's going to Alaska to hunt with my sister. And that's why she packed so much. I need to know. Was she like this avid hunter in Colorado? There was nothing that I found supporting that she was an avid hunter, but she could have been. Yeah, I'm not buying it. I didn't either. A woman in the 50s going out to shoot caribou? Hey, she had it all. She was a boss lady in the 50s. She could have been. She has enough money to buy the ammunition when she gets to Alaska then. Exactly. I thought this was really suspicious, and I think it was his way of trying to be like, Oh, if it blew up in her suitcase, it's because it had 500 rounds in there. Right. He's trying to explain why it was her suitcase that blew up. Exactly. And you know what we say to that? Baloney. (laughs) Gloria told the FBI that Jack had given his mother a present on November 1st before they left for the airport. For his sister? So that she wouldn't open it? For his mom, since she would be gone for Christmas. Oh, so she was going to keep it until Christmas. Right. Gloria believed when Jack told her that he had purchased a small tool set for his mother for crafting. And that's why it was so heavy. Yes. She said he wrapped it by himself in Christmas paper, and she described it as about 18 by 14 inches in size. She said that she saw him take it to the basement to give to his mother as she was packing her bags. She didn't witness him give it to her, but assumed he had. My guess is she didn't see it after that. When pieces of Daisy's luggage had been found... They asked Jack to come in and identify them. He did so willingly. 
Officials took this opportunity to question him further about the gun ammunition and the Christmas gift that he claimed were in her luggage. During this interview, Jack said he didn't actually purchase the tools for his mother. His wife just assumed he did. I'm guessing he said this to try and put further separation between himself and the luggage. He allegedly told the agents that his wife had a faulty memory, which meant her statements were unreliable. So he's saying that he didn't purchase her a gift at all or that they weren't tools? That he didn't purchase it for her at all. Okay. And I thought, real nice, Jack. You're throwing the only one standing by your side under the bus. Like, oh, she just thinks she saw me with it wrapped up. I didn't actually buy it. I have a hard time believing he has any regard for any human being. He just sent 44 people to their death. So I doubt he had any regard for his wife's well-being either. No, he couldn't have. The FBI had discovered that Jack was listed as a beneficiary for a $37,500 life insurance policy taken out at the airport. He could offer no explanation how this happened. He said his mother had taken out policies with his sister and aunt as beneficiaries, and he had mailed those for her. This part was true. It turned out that there had been policies purchased for his sister and aunt. They were the two lowest policies purchased for the minimum amount of coverage of 6250 There were multiple? Three taken out on Daisy. And I am certain that he took out these ones for the aunt and sister to make it look like his mother was buying one for everyone. Except his was more money. A lot more money. Well, not the most, though. Not the most, which is bizarre to me. Honestly, he has a ton of money. Why not take all three out at the largest amount if you're doing this for money? Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe he didn't have enough change on him. Maybe. It's a long time to be feeding quarters into the insurance vending machine. Right. That just seems stupid, though. It is really dumb. But it actually did raise a red flag because Daisy had three of these total policies sold to cover an extremely low risk of dying. It was not very common to have three policies for one person. Right. Can't you just put multiple beneficiaries on one policy? No, I don't think you could. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I thought, did Jack really think that the FBI was so stupid that they would believe he had no idea about the policy in his name? And like you said, how dumb was he to not take out the highest amount of coverage for himself? Why not all three of them be the highest amount? Because then one would appear more suspicious than the other. Exactly. I don't know what he was thinking. Jack continued to tell officials that once his mother boarded the plane, he and his wife and son went to the airport to have dinner at the coffee shop inside. He waited around to see the destruction? Yeah. Oh, that is cruel. Ooh. It's low. He said that the food was not good at this coffee shop, and he had gotten sick because of it. A neighbor counteracted this statement, saying they heard Jack turned white and vomited when he heard that his mother's plane had crashed. He later admitted that he had gotten sick because he was concerned for his mother. Uh, not too concerned not to put dynamite in her luggage. Exactly. The neighbor also stated that they witnessed Jack pacing through his house as well as outside all hours of the night. He obviously was distraught, but I bet they originally felt sorry for him, losing his mom in such a sudden and violent way. They probably did feel sorry for him. Yeah. And is it his guilt over all the other people? I don't know, because he doesn't really seem to show guilt or any type of remorse. Hmm. Maybe it was just that initial reaction. Like, oh my gosh, I actually did it. She's gone. Agents knew the math wasn't mathing. And so they went to the Graham's home to get signed statements from his wife. At this point in time, they told Jack that he was a suspect and could consult an attorney if he chose to do so. And I hope he was sweating bricks at that time. Oh, I hope so too. Instead of freaking out, though, Jack played it off as innocent, and offered to take a polygraph and boldly invited the agents to search his home and property, 
and take anything they needed to aid in the investigation. Well, by this time, he's had how many days to clean up any evidence that there might be? Right. And he even gave them written permission to do all of this. He was willing to do anything to help catch the dirtbag who caused his dear sweet mother to perish. But now can they match his written permission to the signatures on the insurance policies? They're going to find even better than that. Upon investigating the Graham home, agents found damning evidence against Jack. They found a small roll of copper wire with yellow insulation in a pocket of Jack's work clothes, the same wire that was found at the scene and was believed to be used to create the bomb that took down the flight. Wait. He had days to clean up and he didn't get rid of all the evidence of creating this bomb? Nope. And even worse, locked inside a chest, the insurance policy dated November 1st, 1955 for 37,500 naming Jack as the beneficiary was magically found. Oh my goodness. At his house. At his house. His things, not his mom's. His things. His mom technically had bought the house, but it's where he lived. Right. And she wouldn't have been able to get it back to the house because she was on the airplane. Exactly. And he had already denied that he had any knowledge of it. Yeah. So how does it get locked in a box? Oh, my goodness. He said he had no idea about it, yet it suddenly appeared locked inside a cedar chest inside his home. But What a dumb dirtbag. He is, but he's reckless. And we've seen this from his past, too. He's just a reckless dirtbag. Impulsive. Right. He's not putting a lot of thought into the things that he's doing. No. Agents also learned that Jack was going to inherit a large amount from his mother's estate in addition to the airport policy. The agents put on the pressure, asking questions that Jack couldn't give them answers to. They provided evidence that went against his original statements. Like, here's the policy we found in your house. Exactly. Oh my goodness. I can't even get over it because he had days while they were doing all this investigating. To hide all of these things. Right. Did he think because it was in a locked cedar chest, they weren't going to find it? He didn't think that they would look there. (laughs) I don't think he thought they would even be wise to him, that they would even show up at his house, to be honest. Right, because he is so conniving. And how would they possibly know? Everything got blown up. He probably was just thinking, there's going to be no evidence. Right. They were too smart for you, Jack. That's right. Yay, FBI. They did really good. I love science. Mm Mm-hmm. The heat must have gotten to him because eventually his goose cooked and he started to confess everything. He admitted to leaving his Chevy truck on the tracks to collect the insurance money and said he was responsible for setting the fire at the restaurant with the same motive. For the restaurant explosion, he disconnected a gas line connection, which allowed gas to fill the room until it ignited from the pilot light on the water heater. Eventually, he also admitted that he had carefully placed a homemade bomb inside his mother's suitcase and set it to go off once he knew she would be in the air. To create the bomb, he used 25 sticks of dynamite. Whoa! Two electric primer caps, a timer, and a 6-volt battery. Jack signed a confession and was first charged with sabotage. And I just wanted to note that his confession would vary slightly in the details each time he told it, so I went with the FBI report, not his confessions. They basically confess to the same things, but the details do change slightly. Things like when exactly he put the bomb into her suitcase and things like that. Okay. His bond was set at $100,000, which is $1.1 million U.S. dollars and almost $1.5 million Canadian today. Well, that seems fitting since he now has access to all of his mother's fortunes. But this was a lot of money to be bond at that time. But rightfully so. 
44 people, rightfully so. Absolutely. Needless to say, he remained in custody. No one was paying this money to bail him out. His poor wife and kids. Yeah, I know I can't even imagine. But she stands by him through the trial. She does. She does. Even though he's smacking her around. Yep. She doesn't believe that he would do this to his mother. She had to know that he did it. It's proven. On November 17th, 1955, Jack was charged with the murder of his mother, Daisy King. It is remarkable how quickly the FBI handled this tragedy. They had their guy in just over two weeks after the crash. Two weeks to hide evidence. Yeah, from the 1st to the 17th. I cannot imagine the man hours it took to carry out this investigation. They had to have been working nonstop around the clock. Not wanting to leave Jack's fate up to his confession alone, agents went to work proving that Jack had built the bomb. They traced where he had purchased the needed items and had shop owners confirm that he had purchased the deadly items from them. Jack wasn't wanting to take any chances either and quickly transferred all his assets into his wife's name. He then declared himself unable to pay for counsel and was appointed three Denver attorneys by the court. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Does that actually work? It did. They appointed him the attorneys. I don't know if it still does. But they were still married. They were still married. Because I have heard many times that people actually divorce their spouse to get those privileges of having an attorney provided or to have medical care taken care of, but they didn't divorce. No, he was able to just transfer it all over and then say, look, I have no money. And the court had to pay for his attorneys. Interesting. I'm sure it's a lot different now, but this is how it was in Denver at the time. And again, like I said, Gloria stayed by his side. And I know it was the 50s, but there has to be some threshold of dirtbaggery that would permit even a 1950s housewife to give her lowlife hubby the boot. Well, Daisy had done it. She had been strong enough to do it. Right. And her husbands hadn't murdered 44 innocent people. So crazy. But, I mean, if she's committed to him and she loves him, it's hard to say what she was feeling in those moments. Yeah. She could have been in shock even because this was just over two weeks that he's now being arrested. It would be so hard to believe that somebody that you loved could do something like this. So I can see why she would initially stand by him. Oh, yeah. She probably felt like she was in a whirlwind. Mm -hmm. Despite signing a confession, Jack pled innocent and innocent by reason of insanity before, during, and after the alleged time of the crime. Jack was examined by two court-appointed psychiatrists. He said he was influenced by a photo while being questioned in the office relating to World War II, which related to explosives, which then gave him the idea of saying he planted a bomb made from dynamite. Neither doctor believed this ludicrous claim, and both found him legally sane. Yeah, no kidding. It sounds ridiculous. It is. Oh, I see a picture. Oh, yeah, I planted a bomb. No. It doesn't happen that way, honey. He was examined by six psychiatrists in total, all with the same results. He was sane. As sane as a murderer can be. Right. Sane enough to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Jack was kept at the Denver County Jail and was said to be a good prisoner while he awaited trial. However, on February 10th, 1956, at around 5.30 p.m., a guard found Jack slouched on the floor. No. He could hear heavy breathing by his cell and went to check it out. Jack was found with his socks tightly twisted around his neck. He had inserted a piece of cardboard to twist it as tight as he could. He commits suicide? He lives. <gasps> Ooh. Jack was placed in a straight jacket and sedated. The next day, he was sent to the psych ward at Colorado General Hospital. There, he was strapped to a bed and watched by four guards. 
Following this, he was placed under 24-hour surveillance. During his examination by a psychologist, Jack gave more details about the day of the flight. He said he did make the bomb, and when his mother was getting last-minute stuff ready for her trip, he snuck the bomb into her suitcase and added extra webbing to secure it. He and his entire family drove Daisy to the airport. He dropped everyone off at the door and went to park the car as a gentleman would. Can you imagine if it had gone off prematurely and killed his own family? I can't. How would you ever feel comfortable just driving around your family with explosives in the vehicle? 25 sticks of dynamite. Yeah. I mean, he was fine putting on a plane with 40 other people. It's true. So after he dropped them off and went to go park the car, it was then that he seized his opportunity of being alone with the case and turned the timer on the bomb. And I think it had a 90 minute maximum on the timer. Once inside the airport, he swiftly took the suitcase to the weighing counter so it could be weighed and sent to be loaded on the plane. 90 minutes before a flight? That doesn't seem very long at all. (laughs) Times have really changed. When the doctor asked him how he felt about the other people on the plane, he said that he realized there could be upwards of 60 people on the plane, but quote, the number of people to be killed made no difference to me. What? It could have been a thousand. What a dirtbag. When their time comes, there is nothing they can do about it. And he thought he was the person to determine that time? Yeah. Wow, that is narcissistic. Totally. It didn't matter to me. There could have been a thousand. I was going to do what I was going to do no matter what. Also, he could have some money or possibly get revenge on his mom. Right. Well, now she was going to make him pay rent and she was making him pay back the bail. And this was his solution, which was always his solution. To set something on fire, to blow something up, to get something struck by a train. Did they find any evidence to how long he was working on this plan? I don't think long, because it was after the restaurant explosion that she decided, okay, I'm going to go and visit Helen, spend Christmas there, just get away. Right. And how many days before the flight did he purchase the things to make the bomb? That I'm not sure. But it wasn't like months and months. Wow. It had to have been just days or weeks. So he is super impulsive. Once he makes a plan, he's carrying it through without a lot of thought. Yep. And after Jack had this discussion with the doctor, he said he felt better to get all that off his chest. What off of his chest? He didn't even express any remorse. I know. But he's like, oh, now I've said it. It's out there. I feel better. What a dirtbag. Yeah. He's so terrible. Jack was returned to the jail. And on February 24th, 1956, he dropped his insanity plea. His trial was set for April 16th that same year. Twelve people were chosen as jury members. They had been selected from a record-breaking number of possible jurors, which at that time was 231. Jack filed a waiver of jury trial for his trial, but it was denied. He would have to face his peers. Good. The judge had a remote control in the courtroom to control when the press cameras could record the trial and when they were not permitted. There had been debate regarding if the trial should be televised, as it was a new concept at the time, and this was the compromise. Wow. That's a lot of trauma to put a lot of people through, because there were so many people involved. Yes. And people lined up for hours each day before the trial started, with their lunches in hand, hoping to get a seat. As you can imagine, a tragedy like this made big news and attracted a large crowd. Reportedly, the guard at the door always let one particular woman into the courtroom early to get her seat. It was the wife of the pilot. Hmm. Jack was described in the FBI report as being, quote, supremely calm and unconcerned during the proceeding. 
He slouched in his chair, chewed gum, and occasionally conferred with his attorneys. His behavior is just so disrespectful to the lives he took. It just makes it even worse. It's such a slap in the face for all of them. It really is. I can't imagine being there for one of my loved ones who perished in that flight and see him slouched in his chair, chomping on his gum. No, you just want to go over and slap him. Yeah. It's like, is this inconveniencing you, sir? It's maddening. It really is. It's just that insult to injury. Jack's defense team tried to argue that the testimonies given by FBI agents and Jack's signed confession were illegal because Jack hadn't been informed of his rights prior to giving them information, and he was under duress at the time. Didn't he voluntarily provide that information? He did. These claims were totally untrue. The agents did their due diligence right from the beginning of informing Jack of his rights. On May 5th, 1956, the jury deliberated for 69 minutes before finding Jack guilty of first-degree murder for Daisy's death and recommended the death penalty. He was never charged for the deaths of the other 43 people on the flight. That is wrong. Yeah, I was surprised. That felt unjust. Jack's lawyers immediately tried to motion for a new trial. But on May 15th, the judge denied the motion. The judge was not messing around when she set Jack's execution date for August 26th, less than four months after his trial ended. Wow. What happened to all the appeals that they have to do for a death row inmate? She was wanting it done. You can imagine how much everybody would have hated this guy. Oh, for sure, but there's still legal process to go through. She was giving them four months. The date was stayed by the Colorado Supreme Court, so they ended up with a little bit more time. But two of Jack's attorneys had gone against his wishes and had filed a formal record of appeal. Jack was saying, don't bother. He was okay with dying. Yep. On October 22nd, the same Supreme Court allowed the lower court decision to stand and set a new execution date of January 12, 1957. On Friday, January 11th, one day early, John, or Jack, Gilbert Graham, was executed inside a gas chamber at the Colorado State Penitentiary. He died 12 days shy of his 25th birthday. A news article after his execution said that leading up to his death, Jack didn't seem to be worried. He played cards and checkers with the guards and chess with the Catholic prison chaplain. Gloria had visited her husband the Sunday before his death. She said she would not visit again because it was too hard on both of them. Guards said that Jack kept to himself in prison and never showed any signs of remorse. In fact, his sister said that Jack joked with her and Gloria about the crash after it happened. He said, quote, Can you just see those shotgun shells going off in the plane every which way? And the pilots, passengers, and grandma, meaning Daisy, jumping around. What? He thought it was funny to imagine all of the shots going off inside the plane. But that's not a surprise because he has done that before. Mm -hmm. Thinks it's funny. Violent things. He's inappropriately funny. Yeah. He's not funny. He also said before his conviction that he was sad his mom didn't get to open the Christmas gift he had purchased for her. What an arse. Honestly. (laughs) Wow. Especially when you think about all of the stuff that she has done for him. She bailed him out. She gave him a house. She gave him a job. Yeah. Went there to help out with the baby. Yeah, she wasn't there for him when he was a child, but she was trying to repair that relationship. Mm-hmm. And we have seen dirtbags who have had way worse childhoods than he did. Yeah, that's true. When a fellow inmate tried to push religion on Jack, he responded, quote, What do I need with that kind of stuff where I'm going? It won't do me any good in hell. At least he had an understanding. (laughs) When asked what he wanted for a last meal, Jack didn't put in any request. 
He was brought a dinner of steak, fried potatoes, tossed salad, fruit cocktail, and ice cream. Reportedly, all he ate was the ice cream. Prior to his execution, Jack joked to the reporter who covered his trial that he could sit on his lap during the execution if he wanted to. He was described as being jovial. There's got to be like a emotional dysfunction going on or something. Six psychiatrists thoroughly examined him and did not report any type of mental health issues going on with him. He's just so inappropriate, though, with his emotions. Yeah, he really is. Is he just that downright rotten to his core or was there something going on? It's very curious. Mm -hmm. Right before entering the gas chamber, Jack was stripped naked and was given a pair of prison-made shorts to wear. Apparently, the poisonous cyanide fumes at the time would not wash out of the fabric, so inmates were stripped of their clothing prior as to not waste them. It's resourceful. I guess it is. Right before his death, the man who strapped him into the cold metal chair inside the cylinder-shaped gas chamber said, God bless, to which Jack simply replied, thank you. The straps were made of leather and went around his arms, legs, and chest. A black mask was placed over his head, and he was given a final blessing by the chaplain. Everyone but Jack left the room. The door was sealed using a large wheel on the door. The room was completely quiet. Seconds later, cyanide pellets were heard plopping into acid, which caused the deadly gas to surround Jack. He struggled for air as his head shook from side to side. He let out a blood-curdling scream as his chest expanded against the leather strap. Moments later, he was gone. He was pronounced dead at 8.08 p.m. His remains were cremated. He was the 96th person to be executed under Colorado death penalty. Gloria was able to collect insurance money on his behalf after his death. During his trial and incarceration, she said about her husband, quote, I still love him and I'm right behind him. People said they could see the toll this case took on her. She was pale and not sleeping and had even received death threats from the public for what her husband did. I do not believe she had any idea what his plan was that frightful night. And that is the case of one man's severe actions caused by greed, but also fueled by insurmountable feelings of revenge and hatred. The dirtbag who didn't care who stood in his way and viewed 43 people as collateral damage. The sickening John Jack Gilbert Graham. He's just so narcissistic. Yeah, he's a gross human being. And now we know why we have all the airport security. Absolutely. In fact, just last night... We dropped one of our daughters off at the airport. She's gone off on a humanitarian trip. She's still in the air as we're recording this. And last night I thought to myself, what was I thinking writing a case on such a horrific plane crash while my baby's up in the air? You were not. I was not. Not good planning at (laughs) all. No, I'm already worried about her. She's headed to South America. And here I am talking about a plane crash. But I am grateful, and I did think about this at the airport, how grateful I am that we have the security that we do. Never again will I complain about being in line for too long waiting to get through security. It's so true. Sometimes it seems like such an inconvenience, but it is there for our safety. Yeah, and it's cases like this that have prompted those types of security measures. They're absolutely needed. And listeners, we hope if you do any traveling over this summer vacation that you stay safe. And watch out for your loved ones if they're searching for those life insurance vending machines anywhere in the airport. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll be back again with you next week when Melissa has another interesting case. Until then. See ya. Bye.
I'm a genius. You are. <laughs> There's a reason I keep you around. <laughs> so is it his sister he tries to off? Well, I'm not telling you yet. So is she the one he's going to off? I'm not telling you. <laughs> Each check was for $100. Each check was for $100. Because <laughs> I don't have the word dollars. I'm like a hundred totally. It's been a long time since we've had a hundred dollars, so it's hard to say. <laughs> I don't even recognize that. What is that? <laughs> I got no monies. I could buy two loaves of bread with that in Canada right now. <laughs> Bakery giant Canada Bread Co. has been fined $50 million after pleading guilty for its role in the criminal pricing fix scheme that inflated the price of bread in Canada for years. <gasps> Little dirt bag bread company. I don't think I would have put him in a marin and I don't think I would have put him in, in a butter tart break. You know you're a Canadian podcast when you eat Nanaimo bars and butter tarts. <laughs> Too distracting. <laughs> it's all business, no party yet. <laughs> so did he plant a bomb on the plane? Well, I'll tell you exactly what he does. In his mom's luggage? I'll tell you. You can't you can't <laughs> do it all right I now. Know, I just... <laughs> His father was a soldier stationed in in o- his father was a soldier stationed in Okinawa no o- Okinawa Okinawa His father was a soldier stationed in Okinawa o- Okinawa His I'll get this Okinawa When pieces of date when pieces pieces oh. <laughs> words are hard <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.